Welcome to this, our last online chapel for the spring 2020 semester. My name is Ron Jorlock, and I'm the director of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership here at Southeastern. And I'm so grateful that you have come to join us here. We are being broadcast all over the world. There are uh, students and alumni and others who have joined you today uh, to hear uh, from God's word and to worship our Lord through singing and through prayer. We are a praying seminary. And we're grateful for the leadership of folks like Dr. Aiken and Dr. Lawless, uh, who are uh, helping us be uh, a praying people, be people who, who will go before the Lord, not only with our own needs, but for the needs of others. And we would love to pray for you. If there are any of you that have any uh, concerns, any requests that you would love for us to uh, go to the Lord on your behalf, uh, just go to uh, www.sebts.edu slash prayer. That's sebts.edu slash prayer. And if you just make your requests known uh, to us, we will be more than happy to pray with you and for you. Our speaker today is our president, Dr. Danny Aiken. Dr. Aiken is our sixth president here at Southeastern. Uh, he, of course, would much rather be known as the uh, husband of Miss Charlotte uh, and uh, the father of four boys uh, who are now grown men. In fact, one uh, just uh, welcomed into the world uh, their firstborn daughter. And so Dr. Aiken, I'm sure, is very, very excited to have a new granddaughter in the Aiken family. Uh, Dr. Aiken will be bringing to uh, us the word of God. Uh, before we turn it over uh, to Dr. Aiken, though, we are going to have some time of singing and fellowship in song and in worship. Uh, Josh Vai, who has been uh, leading praise and worship for us over the last few weeks, uh, will be joining us again. We're so grateful for uh, God's gifting of uh, this uh, brother and uh, for the whole worship band. Uh, we're grateful for their leading us in singing over these last few weeks. And uh, I'm sure that we will have a wonderful time again as we sing the praises of our awesome God. But before we go to Josh, we want to have some time to encourage you through the reading of God's Word. One of our graduates will be uh, reading scripture from Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10. In Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10, we hear that there is no one like our God, and that one day all of the nations will gather together in singing the praises of the one true God. You know, with all that's going on right now, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. There is a lot of, 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 of questions uh, about what life is going to be like, not just tomorrow, but what life's going to be like in the long term. Well, this is a psalm to encourage us. We have a long-term plan. God has made it known to us. People from every tribe, nation, and language will gather together as one in that day and will sing the praises of our great Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, as we have that in mind, let's hear the word of the Lord today. Hey, my name is Ben Palka. I am a Southeastern alumni from 2016. I serve as a pastor in Washington, D.C. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods, and there are no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you, Lord, 
and will honor your name. For you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, you are so good to us and we give you all the praise and all the glory. There is no God like our God. There is no God who is mighty, who does great and marvelous things. There is no other one to whom we give the credit for creating the heavens and the earth with his powerful word. You did that. You are the one who sustains it with your word. You are the one who has brought a savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will redeem this world and make all things new. You are the one true living God. And we give you the praise and the glory and the honor. Lord, there's much that is going on right now. There's, there are many things that we are uncertain of. We have many, many questions. But there is one thing that we know to be true. You are God and there is no one else. You are good and true and right and wise and loving. You are the one who is in complete control of the heavens and the earth. So Father, I pray that as we hear your word once again, that you would speak to us, that we would leave from this time encouraged, ready to go to our neighbors and to the nations with the good news of Christ crucified, risen and exalted and returning. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to equip us, that we may be faithful to the Great Commission all our days, even in these days. Father, have mercy on those who are sick. Have mercy on those who are tending to the sick. Father, I pray that you would continue to bless our churches, continue to bless our missionaries. Lord, continue to bless all who are serving for your great name's sake. And Lord, I pray that you would so uh, move that in this time and in this season, you would draw many, many more to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask big things of you because you're a big God and there is no one like you. So have your way in this chapel service. Have your way among the nations. Glorify Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's turn our attention to Jesus, his cross and resurrection. What he did changed everything. So let's cast our mind, contemplate what Jesus did for us. Sing it with us. I cast my mind to Calvary with Jesus' blood and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior, that cursed His body bowed in drenching tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb. By heavy stone, Messiah still and all alone. Oh, praise, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore.
One more time, oh friend. Today we come to the last chapel of what has to be the most unusual semester that uh, Southeastern Seminary has ever experienced, and it's certainly the most unusual one that I've ever gone through. And I thought it would be good for us to be reminded in this last chapel how important it is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so I want you to take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to think this morning on the subject, The Great Resurrection the great cover-up, and the great commission. Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 1, and we will read down through verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble." So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had <coughs> excuse me, directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end 
of the age. I have a very good friend who is an agnostic uh, and also a very gifted writer. Uh, He and I became friends almost 30 years ago, and we have maintained that friendship all these years. Uh, The last time I saw him 30 years ago, we were at my home having dinner. And after uh, we had had uh, a meal together and Charlotte had stepped back into the kitchen and the boys had gone outside to play, as this friend of mine named Mike and I were sitting there, I looked at him and I said, Mike, you spent a semester here at our Bible college. You have gone to classes in philosophy and ethics, theology, New Testament. You've been on a mission trip with us. You've attended a Southern Baptist convention. So when you think through everything, what is the bottom line? And he looked at me, and without any hesitation, he said, well, Danny, the bottom line is the resurrection. I said to him, well, I agree with that, but why do you say so? This is what this agnostic, uh, atheistic friend of mine said. He said, well, Danny, if the resurrection is true, then a number of things naturally follow. Number one, there is a God. Number two, Jesus is that God. And that means, number three, the Bible is true because as God, he would be right about everything. Number four, that means heaven and hell are real. And finally, one's relationship with him makes all of the difference. I want you to know that I agree with my friend Mike 100%. If the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is true, there is a God Uh, He is that God. The Bible is true because he said that it was. And that means heaven and hell are real. And one's relationship with him makes all the difference. Uh, Matthew chapter 28 deals with a number of issues that are very relevant to that whole thinking and that whole conversation. First of all, it begins with the great resurrection in chapter 28 verses 1 through 10. Then secondly, it has kind of an interlude as it moves to what I call the great cover-up in verses 11 through 15. And then finally, it concludes with what we know very popularly as the Great Commission in verses 16 through 20. And so we're going to look at these verses together, keeping at the forefront of our mind the importance of the great resurrection, but also in light of that, the importance of the great commission. First of all, let's look at the issue of the great resurrection and note, first of all, the appearance of the angel. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, that is Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that is early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They, by the way, are referenced back in chapter 27 as some of the women that were present as eyewitnesses to our Lord's crucifixion. You read there in Matthew chapter 27, verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So Mary and Mary go to the tomb. 
But verse two, behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. And note the, the simplicity of the narrative and the use of the word and to move the narrative along. It says, yes, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, I do think it's important to note that in Luke chapter 24 and verse 4, there's the mentioning not of one, but of two angels. And he also adds that these angels had the appearance of men as well. Of course, there's no contradiction here. If there's two, there's certainly one. And though the angels are described here as having the appearance of like lightning and clothing white as snow, we know that every time angels appear in the Bible, they have the appearance of a man. And so verse 3 tells us this is how he appeared, but verse 4 contains the important message, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Uh, That's certainly an understandable thing. And then we move into the announcement of verses 5 through 7. But The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. By the way, that's a common theme that you see in Matthew chapter 28. You'll see the same phrase again in verse 10 where Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. But the angel said, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, Jesus who was put to a brutal death. And then perhaps one of the most wonderful verses in all the Bible, verse six, he is not here, for he is risen as he said, come and see the place where he lay. And so the angel has come down from heaven. Uh, He has appeared to these women. He has given them a glorious, glorious announcement. And then he gives them a commissioning in verse seven. Then he said, go quickly. Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So we have, first of all, the appearance of an angel. Secondly, we have the announcement, and then we have one of two appearances of the Lord Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. So it says in verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb, first of all with fear, that is certainly understandable, and also with great joy, which is even more understandable, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and he said, greetings, hello, how are you doing? And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Another common theme in Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. I don't think there's any debate whatsoever that the bedrock doctrine and the foundational fundamental of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection is not true, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are of all men to be pitied and we are still dead in our sins. 
Furthermore, if the resurrection is not true, those of us who claim to follow Jesus of Nazareth as our risen, resurrected Lord have played the fool and we have believed nothing less than a lie. You know, it's interesting that when you study uh, church history and you look at how people have tried to deal with the issue of the resurrection, all sorts of theories have come uh, uh, forward and have been issued forward to try to explain away the truth of the physical bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus. And of course, all of those words are vitally, vitally important. You look at, for example, the swoon theory that says Jesus did not really die, but fainted because of the enormous physical punishment that he suffered. Uh, there's the spirit theory, which says Jesus was not raised bodily, but somehow returned in a mystical spirit form. There's the hallucination theory that says Jesus preconditioned his disciples to hallucinate by means of hypnosis. The vision theory that the disciples had experiences that they uh, 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 interpreted or understood to be literal appearances of the risen Lord. Uh, there's the legend or the myth theory, which was popularized some years ago by the infamous Jesus seminar, simply nothing more than a fairy tale, a wonder story. There is the stolen body theory, which we're about to look at in verses 11 through 15, which was the earliest uh, explanation of why the tomb was empty. Some said they went to the wrong tomb. Some said they lied for profit. Some even uh, have put forth the mistaken identity theory that the ladies in the early dawn, when it was still kind of dark, mistook Jesus uh, for someone else. Uh, even uh, several years ago, uh, with probably the most uh, hilarious theory, the twin theory, that Jesus actually had a twin brother that was kept in hiding for many, many years. Then after the death of Jesus, suddenly he appears and proclaims that he is the risen, resurrected Lord. Of course, in our day and time, as we seek to engage faithfully Muslims uh, with respect to the gospel, we need to recognize that they too deny the resurrection. In fact, the Muslim theory is found set forth in the Quran in Surah 4, 157, where it says, and they declared, we have put to death the Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of Allah. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but they thought that they did. And so there have been a number of theories set forth throughout the 2,000 years of church history to explain away the historical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when everything is weighed carefully and everything is investigated honestly, you discover that the evidence is overwhelming that the resurrection is true. Perhaps the strongest evidence of all is the fact of the empty tomb. Uh, the early... Um, uh, 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 opponents of Christianity, whether it be the Romans or the Jewish leaders, could have easily put Christianity to rest by simply producing the body of Jesus Christ. Problematically, they could not because the body was not there. The fact that women, as we see in our text, saw him first and are testified to have seen him first is highly unusual given the fact that in the uh, first century, the testimony of a woman uh, was not considered to be reliable and the, a woman was not even allowed to, to give witness or testify in a major type of case or trial. And yet the Bible is consistent that women saw him first. Now, 
If you were trying to push a false agenda in terms of a false resurrection, uh, you would not have said that women saw him first. There really is only one reason that the biblical witness is consistent in affirming that women saw him first, and that is because women saw him first. But perhaps the greatest evidence of all is the fact that there was a change in the lives of the disciples moving from men of cowardice to men who were bold witnesses of the resurrected Lord. And here's what we need to understand here. Men will die for a lie. Uh, certainly, we have seen religious fanatics uh, for, for many, many years and many, many decades and centuries die for a lie, but they died for what they believed was true. In other words, men will die for a lie, but they will not die for what they know is a lie. And the evidence is unanimous, and the evidence is consistent. Virtually every one of the apostles, with the possible exception of the apostle John, sealed their witness to Jesus by their blood, and without an exception, each one said, he is risen, he is risen indeed. In other words, men will die for a lie, but they will not die for what they know is a lie. And so the evidence of the historical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus stands on very, very solid grounds. And so I mentioned a moment ago that the earliest uh, naturalistic theory denying the resurrection of our Lord is the uh, idea of the stolen body. And this is what I refer to as the great cover-up in verses 11 through 15. First of all, you have the truth in verse 11. Now, while they were going, that is while the women were going to share uh, the good news with the disciples, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and they told the chief priest all that had taken place. In other words, they shared that the tomb is now empty. They shared that the rock had been rolled away. They shared that there had been an earthquake and therefore they go and they tell the truth concerning all that they had seen. But that then moves us to the lie of verses 12 through 15. Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders, this is, of course, a reference to the Jewish Sanhedrin. When they had gathered with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, you cannot miss the humor in that. Tell the people they came by night, and we know that they stole him, but by the way, we were asleep. Uh, pretty uh, uh, fantastic to believe all of that. Well, verse 14, and if this comes to the governor's ears, that is to Pilate, uh, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. So they, the guards, took the money. They did as they were directed. And note this phrase, this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. That is at least to the day of the writing of Matthew's gospel, perhaps in the 50s, perhaps in the 60s. I do appreciate the comment of the wonderful New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, when you consider what I call the great cover-up, quote, the story they concoct shows how desperate they are for an explanation. For if the guards were asleep, 
They could not know of the alleged theft. And if one of them awoke, why was not an alarm sounded? And why were the disciples not arrested? Molesting graves was a serious offense in the ancient world, subject at times to the death penalty. And so you have the great cover-up, but the problem was they could not produce a body. They could not put Christianity to death right there from the very beginning because there was no body to be produced. He was risen and the tomb was empty. So we've considered the great resurrection. We've looked at the great cover-up, but that now brings us number three to the great commission. Of course, these verses are very well known by many of us who have studied God's Word. But once more, let me read them. Verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain. Now, let me stop there. It's interesting to note that Matthew's gospel is particularly fond of mountains. And mountains appear with great regularity at very important and crucial moments in the life of the Lord Jesus. For example, he is led to the Mount of Temptation in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. We have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, through chapter 7. We have Jesus being transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Jesus gave his great end-time eschatological sermon or teaching in what we call the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. And now the gospel concludes with him giving his great commission on a mountain to which Jesus had directed them. In verse 17, And when they saw him, on the one hand, they worshipped him. But on the other hand, there were some who were doubting. And again, I can easily understand that. After all, the fact that God raised his son from the dead, and by the way, he is the only person who has ever been raised from the dead, never to die again, other than what we find in the Old Testament with Enoch and with Elijah. And so even though they have the flesh and blood, uh, uh, resurrected Lord Jesus right there before them, it is very easy to understand their doubting and even their confusion. But verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By the way, that is echoing back to that classic Son of Man text in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where all authority is given by the ancient days to this one who is called the Son of Man. So all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, notice the use of the word all. You see it there in verse 18. You see it again in verse 19. And you see it twice in verse 20, first with the word all and then the word all. Always. So once more, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth, this is comprehensive and universal, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, let's think about this first of all. 
John Piper in reflecting upon what we call the Great Commission. By the way, uh, the phrase Great Commission does not actually appear anywhere in the Bible, but it is true, just as the phrase Trinity does not appear anywhere in the Bible, and yet we know that the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists as one and yet three. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is likewise a true biblical doctrine. So reflecting upon the words that Jesus delivers in the Great Commission, John Piper says it this way, and I quote, The risen Christ is great, greater than you ever imagined. Here is our witness to the world. The risen Christ is your King, and He has absolute, unlimited authority over your life. If you not bow and worship him and trust him and obey him, you commit high treason against your king who is God over all. And so as we look at these final verses, let me break down the Great Commission in three movements. Number one, his power. Number two, his plan. And number three, his promise. First of all, his Power. He says in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority, all power. Note this is comprehensive and this is universal. All authority is mine, both in heaven above and here on earth, and it has been given to me, given by his Father. He has absolute, universal, comprehensive power and authority over all things. And so whatever he says must be heard. And whatever he says must be radically and quickly obeyed. All authority is mine in heaven and on earth. We see his power. But then secondly, beginning in verse 19, we also see his plan. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, and here's the Trinity, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, anyone that has studied the Great Commission knows, and if not, then this will be new information to you, that there is a single imperative in verse 19 and verse 20, and it is the imperative, make disciples. So the Lord Jesus is calling us to go and to baptize and to teach followers of Jesus, followers of the Messiah, those who have taken him as their Lord, those who have taken him as their Savior, those who, as John Piper said a moment ago, confessed him as their king. Now, the word go and the word baptizing and the word teaching are all participles. And so sometimes people have said, well, the verse has the idea of as you go, make disciples, and as you go, baptize, and as you go, teach. And certainly that would be true, but that is not what the text is saying. I am convinced that because of the close proximity of these three participles, go, baptize, and teach, to the imperative, make disciples, they themselves receive a force or the force of an imperative. In other words, Jesus is saying, go. Jesus is saying, baptize. Jesus is saying, teach. And he tells us to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
So how is it that we make disciples? First of all, we go. This, of course, is the act of evangelism and the act of missions. We cannot make disciples unless we go. We cannot baptize them unless we go. We cannot teach them unless we go. Southeastern Seminary is well known for its focus on and its attention to the Great Commission. And the Great Commission obedience of this seminary is summarized in the single word, go. Going is not enough, but you cannot do the other things. You cannot take the other steps unless you first go, share the gospel, and people repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. But making converts is not enough. We're called by Jesus to make disciples. And one of the ways we make disciples is by baptizing. Uh, often today, I meet people that will profess and, and confess Jesus as Lord. And then I will follow up and say, well, when were you baptized? And their response will be, well, I haven't been baptized. I need to be honest with you today. If you're watching this and uh, you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you have not been baptized, you need to understand, number one, you're being disobedient to a clear command of King Jesus. Secondly, if we were by some miracle uh, to bring uh, to us today, say the Apostle Paul, and I were to point him to you and say, look, there goes a believer in Jesus who has not followed him in baptism, Paul would say, what? Maybe he would even say, huh? In other words, Paul would find that whole idea nonsensical because in the New Testament, there is no such thing as a follower of Jesus Christ who has not followed him by believer's baptism in immersion. And so if you're here and watching this and listening to this and you never followed him in baptism, then you need to take that very first step of obedience and follow King Jesus into the waters that do not save you, but they symbolize your death, the burial and the resurrection and your identification with Jesus in your salvation. So we go. We baptize and we teach. And I, again, love the comprehensive nature of what the Word of God says. We teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Simply put, we teach them all of Scripture. We teach them from Genesis to Revelation. We teach them what the Bible says about God and what the Bible says about Revelation and what the Bible says about fallen humanity. We teach them what the Bible says about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, about salvation, about the Holy Spirit, about the doctrine of the church, about the end times, and many, many other things because we teach a comprehensive message as obedient disciples of King Jesus and the Great Commission. I love what John Stott says about our Lord's plan. Quote, we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. We go and we make disciples of all the ethnes, all the nations, or as Revelation says, every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. But then finally, that leads us to his great promise at the end of verse 20. And behold, take note, I, the risen Lord Jesus, am with you 
always to the end of the age. I love telling those that God has called to international missions that no matter where you're going, rest in this confidence and rest in this promise. The Lord Jesus is already there waiting for you. He has already been working and he is there waiting for you. You will not go alone. You will go there with his presence. Perhaps that was the promise that motivated the great missionary to Africa, David Livingston, to go and die on his knees in prayer, whose heart was actually buried there under a tree where he said, sympathy is no substitute for action. Without Christ, not one step. With Christ, anywhere. And it was that kind of promise that we find in the Word of God that moved that great missionary to take the gospel to those who up to that point in time had never once heard the name of King Jesus. No, no matter who you are, no matter where you go, you have the promise, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Missionaries uh, are heroes to me. I love to read missionary biographies. I love to collect great missionary quotes. I close with noting two of my missionary heroes from the past. C.T. Studd, who lived from 1880 to 1931, was known as one of the famous Cambridge Seven, who served as a missionary in China, then in India, and finally in Africa. He died in the Congo and was buried there in a very simple grave. I love what he said when it came to being obedient to the Great Commission in terms of our going, quote, some wish to live within the sound of a church bell, but I wish to run a rescue mission within one yard of hell. What a great statement. Some wish to live within the sound of a church bell, but I wish to run a rescue mission within one yard of hell. Another man from Great Britain, hero to me, John Keith Falconer, an English aristocrat, came from a very wealthy family. He was a great athlete and a world cycling champion in 1878, a brilliant Arabic scholar in Cambridge. He felt God's calling to be a missionary to the Middle East, and so he went to Yemen and yet God in his mysterious providence took him at the tender age of 31, dying from malaria, like C.T. Studd buried on the mission field in Congo. Uh, John Keith Falconer was buried on the mission field in Yemen. And I close with these powerful words from this faithful Christian missionary. I have but one candle in life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. One more time. I have but one candle in life to burn. And I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. Those of us who love and follow King Jesus know that we do so standing on the rock-solid foundation of a great resurrection. And we know that we go, and we go with the promise of his presence in obedience to a great commission. Southeastern Seminary seeks to be a great commission seminary where every classroom is a great commission classroom. 
Every professor is a great commission professor. Every student is a great commission student who then goes out as great commission graduates, being a part of great commission churches and great commission ministries. This is our task. This is our calling. And this is our assignment until the end of the age. And yes, as we go, we have his wonderful promise, I am with you always. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promise of your presence as we take the good news of King Jesus around the world. And thank you that we have the privilege of proclaiming a gospel of a risen, resurrected Savior because there is an empty tomb there in the Middle East. And Lord, there are men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who still need to hear the good news of the gospel of King Jesus. So Lord, help each of us in our own lives and hearts to pray and ask this question, Lord, not should I go, but Lord, in light of the great need, why should I stay? And Lord, as we go, may we be comforted by the fact that you are with us even until the end of the age. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we make our prayer in the name of our risen and resurrected Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. of life when storms come he is our anchor he is our rock let's sing this out together my hope is built my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus pardon righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest faith but holy
so good to us and we thank you for your kindness thank you Lord for your grace thank you Father for this great institution here at Southeastern thank you Lord for how you have brought students here to our campus and even now online thank you Father for the professors uh, whom you have called to teach and to equip these students to go to the ends of the earth 
And now, Lord, I pray for those uh, students who are graduating. Lord, they have been here. They have taken the classes. They've written the papers and passed the exams. And now they are standing on the edge, looking out. Lord, some know where they're going. And I pray, Lord, that uh, they would serve you well there. Some still yet don't know where uh, you are sending them. Lord, give them clarity, give them wisdom and direction. Uh, Lord, I pray that wherever you send them, that they may be faithful. Lord, we have been faithful as an institution to, to teach them your scriptures, to give them the skills that they would be uh, the best trained to fulfill the Great Commission here and abroad. Father, I pray for these, your students, that as they leave from here, that they would be faithful to the Great Commission. Keep them far, Lord, from the evil one who wants everything in his power to, to derail them, uh, to, as, as, as the Lord said to Peter, to sift them like wheat, to attack their faith, to attack their sense of mission, Father, drive him far away from these graduates. May they be faithful all the way to the end. For those whom you are sending in harm's way, Lord, I pray that you would guard and protect them. Lord, for all of your students, I pray that they would be faithful to deny themselves, take up their crosses every day, and follow the Lord Jesus. And in so doing, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would draw millions more to faith in our King, that they may be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious light. And I thank you for that. Father, I pray for, uh, again, for those who are in authority in our, um, in our cities, uh, in our states, in our nation, and even across the globe. Lord, I pray for them as they have to make very tough decisions day by day. Have mercy on them, Lord. Bless them with wisdom. And I pray, Lord, that you would have mercy that through their decisions, uh, lives would be saved. And the virus that continues to plague our world would slow and even stop. Lord, we realize that you are able as we see testimony over and over again in the scriptures, all you have to do is say the word and diseases will submit to your authority. And so Father, I pray that you would have mercy to bring this to a stop, that we may be able to gather again in community, that we may be able to see each other and serve Christ face to face, side by side. And I thank you so much for that. And Father, I pray uh, for the lost. Lord, there are so many that don't know Christ. Lord, we know that uh, in this time of social distancing, it may be more difficult to get the gospel to uh, the places and to the people who need it the most. Father, I pray that you would give us uh, wisdom to know exactly how we can go and how we can continue to share, how we can continue to get the gospel out. Lord, I pray that even in this time of social distancing, you may do the impossible. 
Lord, that even in this time where we're supposed to keep away from one another, uh, Lord, that the gospel will continue to get to those who need it the most, that they may hear the good news of Christ and believe and be saved. May we, Lord, as an institution, continue to make disciples of all peoples. May we continue to deploy men and women all around the world that disciples may be made of all nations. That, Lord, as we read earlier in Psalm 86, the nations may gather together and sing the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ. To that end, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, that you would send your Son, that he would be exalted, and that he would make all things new. We thank you, Father. Bless us now as we enter the summer. Bless us, Lord, as we serve you. May we be faithful to the end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.